All right, if you'll grab a seat, go ahead and make yourself comfortable again. And as you do that, Wes is going to help kind of draw us back into our attention by calling our minds to Jesus and through the words of the author of Hebrews. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Thanks, Wes. Um, so, if you were here last week, um, you get to hear a little bit of Kyler's story. Um, you know, our, our last time in, in our old space, um, we talked about what the Lord is doing outside of our space, because as a faith family, that's what we value, really. Like, we love this time. We enjoy this time, but we value what the Lord does um, outside of this time. I think that there's a primary weight to that. But there's something about Kyler's story, um, just like you hear other people's story, that um, when you hear somebody give their story, right, it kind of draws you in. Have you ever noticed that? Like, have you ever, like... When somebody is given a testimony, whether in a gathering like this or like maybe um, um, something you find online or um, maybe at a commencement address or whatever, whatever there's like a story. When somebody's telling a story about themselves, maybe even at a party or a get together or hangout, there's something about their story that kind of draws you and you get connected into the story. Have you ever noticed how naturally that happens? Like that's a pretty common thing. There's something about listening to another story that captures us. Like, and, and maybe not always, maybe not every story, right? But generally speaking, when we're listening to somebody else's story, we're kind of captured in the moment. We're kind of, we're actually present. Whether that be across a, a from one another over a cup of coffee, and we're sharing each other's stories about what's going on in the week, of what's happened in our lives and who we are. Whether that happens in a congregation, again, like last Sunday. Or whether it comes through the written words, where we're reading the stories of somebody's lives. We're reading about what, uh, what somebody else has done and what they've gone through. Or maybe uh, even when we go see uh, plays, right? Like we, we love plays in our house. We love um, uh, musicals and all those kind of things. And there's something about the story, what, this thing that's unfolding in front of us that captures us and draws us in, right? Or maybe it's even, even the, the, the motion images on, on the screen, right? That, that when a, a story is told good and well, when it's true, like it's something about it that just draws us and captures our attention, and listen, this connecting power of story often has little to do with the drama or lack thereof of the story or storyteller. Now, obviously, there's a craft of storytelling, right? There are people who are really good storytellers. And so that's why some stories maybe have a little more stickiness to them. Why maybe they have been captured throughout history and told over and over again or are done in ways where a magnitude and multitude of people listen to it. There is a craft to storytelling. But the magnetism of story, the connection of story, actually uh, the universality of story that engrosses and tangles us is actually something else. It's actually quite naturally what happens is when another person is telling their story, we can't help but think of our own story. Have you ever thought of that? Like when somebody else is telling their story, you can't help but think of your own story. How it connects, what's similar, what's different. When we listen, read, or watch, we're also comparing and contrasting. We do this naturally as humans. 
we hear similarities and differences. No matter how slim these connections may be, no matter how much of a gaping the variance might be between their story and ours and the details, we somehow find our way into everyone else's story. We see how it's like ours or not like ours, what we can learn from it, what we can't learn from it. Sometimes what happens, and this is kind of cool, right? If you think about it, you can, you can probably remind yourself, like if you remember, um, this has probably happened at some point maybe with a friend, maybe with somebody who has a really powerful story, maybe in, the, in a book or a movie. But for the, maybe for the first time, when that person is telling their story, you begin to recognize patterns and depth and purpose in your own life. Because their patterns and depths and purpose are kind of unfolding in front of you. The narrative arc of their story starts to shed some light on your story, right? Like, and sometimes that's really positive, right? Sometimes it, it, it happens for the better. It brings us encouragement and inspiration. And sometimes, though, it happens with unsettling clarity. The way their story is unfolding, what's happening in their story, what, what similarities or differences in their story actually kind of brings up an uneasiness of our own story, something that's lacking or missing. And listen, there's a binding power of this story, of story that starts early in us as humans. This natural phenomenon that we've all experienced. And I'm sure if we went around the room and just asked, like, what are the most powerful stories you've heard? When have you heard somebody else talk and your heart resonated? And again, either in a positive way or in a way that was convicting and showing. When somebody else was telling a story, you got more clarity on your story. We could all say that's happened to us at some level or another. But this, this binding power starts early. It's because from birth, we're mimickers. Like anybody in here that has kids knows, unfortunately, that your kids copy everything that you do, right? And usually, not for the better, like this is how you as a parent discover a lot of your miscues, right? Like you watch your kids behave and you recognize that their behavior is actually just them mimicking. And so the thing that gets you frustrated isn't so much your kid's behavior as it is that it's actually a little representation of you. <laughs> is this how you really are? This is how you really speak. This is what you really do, right? Now, that's only if we're honest as parents. Um, but but, but like, as parents, honestly, that happens a lot, right? We're mimickers from birth. Intuitively, as, I mean, from the very first moment that we're born in the way that, like, as children, we look for attention. We look for somebody looking back at us. We look for a face that will show themselves to us so that we can know ourselves. Intuitively, from the very beginning, we look to others to know who we are and how to function in life. This is how humans work. We intuitively look to others to know who we are and how to function in life. Imitation is not merely the sincerest form of, of flattery. It's actually the most human thing we can do. It's not just about flattering those we imitate, saying we value them. It's actually intrinsically, instinctually, how we actually live. And while we grow from the explicit and simple mimesis of behavior and words, where we mimic um, without thinking what we see around us, Thank God, as parents, praise Jesus, that my kids won't always just copy what I do. In some ways, that's good, but most ways, we want them to grow out of that, right? At some level, we've all grown out of that, to where we have unique reinterpretations of what we've seen and heard. But the truth is, we never stop instinctively finding ourselves in the stories of others. It's why story continues to be something that draws us in, especially the story of another person, their story, a true story. 
part of the reason we never outgrow being captured and connected in story is that is that's how we were created. Again, this is we were meant to find ourselves in relationship to other people. We're meant to know ourselves in relationship to other people. No man is an island entire of himself, said the poet John Donne. Anybody ever heard that quote before? No man is an island? Usually the quote stops there, right? No man is an island entire to himself. But the final phrase of his famous line, which often gets left off, is that every man, while no man is an island, every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. Not only are we not islands meant to operate entirely of ourselves, we're actually a part of something more than ourselves. We're, we're atomically a part of it, a, a piece of the continent, a part of it, meshed in it, but we're also, as a piece of the continent, connected to other parts of the continent, not isolated from it, we're also a part of this big main thing, this big whole thing. We were created to know ourselves in relation to others, but also as a part of something more than just another person. We can't just know ourselves through other people. We have to know ourselves as a part of something more than another person. The universality of our stories is not in the specific details, but in the grand narrative that their moments echo. Again, like, like last week, Kyler told a story, and he said it pretty well, I thought. He said, listen, my story is unique, but it's also universal. My story is my own story, but it's also every story. It's every person's story. And listen, we may undoubtedly find particular details with others that we share, but I guarantee you, your story is not like Kyler's story, right? You know Kyler. Kyler's super unique, right? And so there's no way your story is Kyler's story, but in, this, in some way, your, Kyler, your story is Kyler's story. It's the same story as Kyler's story. Again, while we might find particular details that we share with others, the enmeshing, binding, and forming power of story emerges not from the details that we share, but from the shared movements of our story's plot. What echoes from, and why we connect to other people's stories, every once in a while it might be because, hey, we, had, we went to a similar school. We had a similar background. We had a similar thing growing up. There's parts of that, that usually that kind of stuff develops into friendship. But the story, the power of the stories that we hear has little to do with those kind of details and has everything to do with how the story actually unfolds. Like Kyler, we too have moved from a place of faithful confidence into doubt. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a place where you felt like you knew who you were and what you were supposed to do? And then something in life happened and you didn't. Right? Have we, have, has anybody ever been there? You don't have to raise your hand. But haven't we all experienced that at some level, maybe even multiple times? That we have felt like we knew God and knew who we were in God, even what God would have us do, and then something happens to change that. Sometimes positive, sometimes negative. Usually, even whether it's positive or negative, it is traumatic. It forces us to reconsider all kinds of things. And often, like in Kyler's story, it sends us into a place of dimness. Yet, at the same time, in that dimness, there's faith that won't let go of us. Have you ever been in that spot? Where it seems like after kind of being on this high where you kind of knew. And maybe the high didn't feel like a mountaintop like you had arrived, but everything was running smooth. Something happens and you fall down. And you fall into what feels like a pit. And in the pit... There's moments of despair, but there's something still that clings to you even in the midst of the darkness. 
There's something that holds to you, reaches out to you, won't let you go. And for some reason, you can't find yourself leaving everything completely behind, even if you struggle to to figure out where to go next. And as you walk through this, something again happens, sometimes quickly, sometimes over a long period of time, but eventually you emerge into the clarity of something new. Suddenly, sometimes, but most of the time, gradually, light comes back. You become able to see yourself again, God again, others again. You know again what you are called to. And you're called to something new. You are something new. You're different, but not totally, right? It's new, but not completely different. But it's a new form of what was already been, what was already new, right? Listen, I contend that the shared resonance that we have in these stories, in the arcs of Kyler's story, and Kyler, I appreciate you letting me... uh, um, Repeat your story last, from last week in the arc of it. Is it your stories, like Kyler's story and my story, are a piece of a continent, a part of the main story? The story in which all stories unfold. That's the power of it, right? Again, the details might be different. When it happens, how it happens, what you're called to, what you feel like, what you know, what you don't know, what the dimness and the darkness, how you experience it in its exactness, what the emerging into light looks like. But all of our stories follow this similar movement. And that's the key. While the stories of others will always resonate with us, there's a reason why there's entire industries built around storytelling and why they're so financially beneficial, right? Because as humans, we're drawn to it. We want it. We can't get enough of it. There will always be, we'll always resonate with other stories, with other people's stories. They'll always entangle us, encourage us, convict us, even give us examples to mimic. Unless, but unless we know ourselves in the context of the story, unless we see not just the resonance of story, but the connection of story into the main story, we'll never truly know ourselves. Look, we can't really know ourselves through other people's stories unless we know ourselves in the story. And we see how the story connects our stories on what actually resonates within us. And until we know ourselves truly, we will never receive that which we so desperately long for. Salvation. We'll never receive that which we so desperately long for. Salvation, right? The thing that we long for. And like, so... What every person looks for in his life, contends Thomas Burton, is this. Salvation. What every person looks for in his or her own life, us and our neighbors, is salvation. Now, again, that may be a word that's all tied up in all kinds of religious meaning for us. But here's what Burton means by it. He says, by the salvation that compels us as humans. He means, first of all, the full discovery of who he in self really is. Isn't that what we all long for? To know ourselves not as we're told, been told who we are, not, not in the sense of like how the world tells us, not to know ourselves in our faults, in our weaknesses, in our, even in our achievements, but to know ourselves truly, essentially, right? To be liberated from that which binds us, freed from that which oppresses us, given sight to see what is true, good and beautiful. Sound familiar? Isn't that what Jesus promised in Luke's gospel to give us? So the first thing that we long for is a full discovery of who we really are. Then, something of a fulfillment of, of 
her own or his own God-given powers in the love of others and of God. That there's not, we don't just long to know who we are, we long to know what we're a part of. To be not just ones who are known, known by somebody else, known by God, known by ourselves, but to be known as a part of something more. To be known as competent in something more. Called to something more. Have something more to live for than just ourselves. I mean, also, says Merton, the discovery that they cannot, that we cannot, find ourselves in ourselves alone. But that we must first find ourselves in and through others. Ultimately, these propositions, contends Merton, are summed up in the two lines of the gospel. If any man would save his life, he must lose it. A text we've been in for a month now, right? And love one another as I have loved you. It's also contained another saying from St. Paul, we are all members one of another. Merton says, and he argues, that this is the thing that we're after most in life. To know ourselves and to know ourselves in relation to others as we relate to something bigger than ourselves. That's what we're actually being saved into. Right? We're not just being saved from, from some sort of eternal pain. We're not just something saved from, from some sort of, um, of moral life or immoral life. We're being saved into something whole and true and forever. Into who we really are. And not who we really are as islands, but as a part of a continent, a piece of a continent, a part of the main. To know our story in the story Liberation from what binds and blinds our person and purpose as we live in the favor of the Lord. That is salvation. And that is where Jesus has led us through Luke's gospel. If you're new with us to Christ City, we, we spent the entire summer walking with Jesus through Luke's gospel. And it got us to this point, to this point of death, of self, of where we, we come to a place where we have to die so that we might live. We might lose ourselves and therefore find ourselves. But not just lose ourselves in the sense of a denying, just to deny, but to lose ourselves for the sake of another, in the affection of another, for the good of another. Jesus' words and actions led us to the truth that we are loved and are loving others, competent and capable in our calling, and transformed in, sum, to, in submission to something and someone more. To speak and act as ones who know who we are, as the psalmist says, who are fearfully set apart. Wonderfully made. Do you know yourself as that? The psalmist would say in, that he has discovered himself to be fearfully made. To be holy and set apart. That's what fearfully made means. Set apart. Holy. To be wholly made. Holy as in separate and holy as in full. Wonderfully made. Holy and wholly committed. That's what the psalmist has discovered about himself when he writes in Psalm 139. The psalmist's statement sounds a lot like Jesus' statement, especially at the end of his life on the cross. For only someone who's genuinely free, who knows themselves fully in relationship, who knows what they've been set apart for, that they've been fearfully set apart, wonderfully made, who knows that they are made for, meshed in something more than themselves, can pray what Jesus prayed on the cross. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
Again, it's not a prayer of resignation. He's not saying, okay, I'm done and I give up. It's a prayer of fulfillment, of maturation, of I know who I am. I'm yours, Father. I'm your child. I know for what I've come, what part I play, and it's something more than me. And so I commit myself and trust myself to you. It's a prayer, if you've noticed, that we've shared over the last several weeks that we received the symbols of Jesus' whole and holy life for our benefit. Every week that we've come together for the last three weeks, we've ended our time together breaking the bread. Jesus' body broken for us on the cross. Taking the juice. His blood poured out for us as a sign of a new covenant. These symbols, they remind us of the truth and reality, the tangible reality that Jesus really was on that cross and really did say these things. That he really committed his life for us. And each week that we've come together, when we've come together, we stood together and we've said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. As a prayer and confession, but also I think as a plea, a longing to be so to be ones who mimic Jesus, who do as Jesus did, who are like him as we follow him. We have, as Kyler said last Sunday, recognized the lordship of Jesus and given ourselves to his cause of truth, meekness, and righteousness. And so now, as a faith family, we'll consider together how. <laughs> it's one thing to say it, right? We've spent the last, last month almost, repeating in different ways over and over again that this is what we're after, this is what we long for, this is where Jesus has led us. So now where do we go from here? How? How does our childlike faith mature into holy commitment? That's what our focus will be over the next month or so as a faith family. If you, again, if you're new to Christ City, this is the way we work. We spend a couple of months in the scriptures looking at the stories of Jesus and the stories of our faith family, and then we come out of that time and say, okay, how do we live this out? How do we walk this out? What does it look like as a people together today to follow Jesus in the way that Jesus asked us to? And so for the next couple of months, that's what our time together in this space is going to look like. We're going to try to answer the question of how does our childlike faith mature into holy commitment? And listen, real succinctly and briefly, the author of Hebrews points out the way for us and what we'll look forward, what Wes just read for us. So let me read it again. Here's what Wes said. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Here we find four ways to live holy and holy committed lives. For those who like to take notes, you can, here's the, the four. These are the bullet points if you're type A persons like me. So how do we live holy and holy committed lives? Real quickly, real briefly, let me just mention these. Again, we'll be fleshing these out together over the weeks to come. First off, we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We imitate Jesus. His life, his story becomes the story that compels us that we look to to follow. And again, not in every detail. Not every detail of Jesus' life will be our, the details of our lives. But the arc of Jesus' life gives an arc to our life. 
The way and manner of Jesus' life gives manner and fashion to our life. Because again, he is the author of our faith. He is the one who wrote our story into his story. So his story is the story that we're trying to get into, right? Trying to discover what our, how our story is a part of. And he not only is the author, the beginner of it, the founder of it, he's also the perfecter of it. He writes the conclusion, the end. And isn't that what we're after, right? And he does so, as the writer of Hebrews says, not merely as an example for us, but as the Lord. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He gives us in his humanity, in his life, everything that we need to be fully human. Because he's not just human. He's more than human. We'll talk about how those things connect and what he leaves us with, his spirit. So first of all, we imitate Jesus. Secondly, we look at the stories of others. We listen to the stories of others. The writer of Hebrews starts off, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Anybody know what chapter 11 of Hebrews is about? Any Bible scholars or Sunday school people? Yeah, the roll call of faith, the history of faith, right? Starting with, with Adam and then into to Abraham and to Moses. And then the, the author of Hebrews just keeps going. And he's like, wait a minute, I'm running out of time. Like there's also like David and Samuel. And he starts kind of listing all these people. And he's like, oh man, there's a whole group of like women who like mourned for things and worshiped for things and called the people of God into repentance for things. There's a whole group of men who stood up rightly and were eaten by lions and like all kinds of stuff. He starts kind of going like, oh my goodness, there's so much to this story of faith that we're a part of. And because we're a part of this, now we look forward to something more. We find ourselves a part of this story. And so we can look at the stories of others and be compelled, be seen our story, find our story, how our story fits in the story of faith. And even more so because we know Jesus. We look to the stories of others, past and present, who have also found their stories in the story, a great cloud of witnesses. So we look to Jesus we imitate him. We listen to the stories of others. And then we also lay aside binding weight and clinging sin. Hebrews says, that lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely, that entangles us, that holds us down. We lay aside those things that would bind and blind us to seeing Jesus. To knowing ourselves in the story and seeing his story in others. We cast off unnecessary habits, ideas, visions, and understandings of a life of holy commitment to God and others. We have to do that, right? Like we have to lay down these weights that keep us from living full and whole lives, the things that would keep us from being fully who we're meant to be. But we also lay down sin. Do you notice that there's a difference? Not everything that weighs us down is just a more moral, like sinful thing. Some of it's misunderstandings. Some of it's immaturity. Some of it's misperceptions. Some of it's false ideas. Some of it, though, is just flat-out rebellion. It's a way of living that actually is harmful and hurtful to others and to ourselves. Whether it's done explicitly because we know it or implicitly because we're not sure, like we, it's just the way that we're, that we're formed in our own self, selfishness and self-absorption. 
But either way, there's a way of living that is against the very thing that we're after. Again, some of that comes from misunderstandings, habits. Some of that comes from sin. And we'll try to flesh those things out over the coming weeks. And we'll do so through a faith family practice called the examine. As we look at the examine through Psalm 139. But let me, let me come back to that, because that's where we're going to spend a lot of time in the coming weeks. So let me say this, like, this is how we get to, to, to walk. This is how we discover our childlike faith becomes mature, holy commitment. We look to Jesus, imitate him. We listen to the stories of others. We lay aside binding weight and clinging sin. And we discover joy, the joy of self-forgetfulness. Whether it be the loosening of the weight of misperceptions and maturity or sin, maturation through the sanctification of our character has a connotation in religion that makes us think primarily of morals and behavior instead of relationship. Does it not? I mean, who didn't cringe a little bit when I said, hey, we're going to lay aside every weight and sin and do the things, right? It's okay. Like, there's something in our human nature that resists that. Sometimes in our human nature, we actually long for it because we like the idea of accomplishment. <laughs> so some of us, maybe rather than kind of cringing, we're like, yeah, all right. Now we get to do the real work of holiness. But in the story of Jesus and what we see in Jesus' life, that's not true. That's not how it works. His actions were motivated by joy. What does the author of Hebrews say? For the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross. He didn't endure the cross out of obligation, mere obligation, right? He chose. It was a willful choice to submit to the Father, to follow into what he was made and created to be. But it wasn't just obligation. It was a chosen willful movement into it, even if it was difficult. He's never tried to hide that difficulty. But he also didn't do it out of some desire for self-fulfillment, to prove himself. You remember in John's Gospel, um, just before Jesus is going into the Last Supper, um, uh, after he's raised Lazarus from the dead, he prays in front of everybody, uh, Father, glorify your, will you glorify me in the way that you've glorified me before? Like, will you, will you glorify me in this hour? And he prays it out loud, which is kind of uncommon for Jesus to do a lot of like, prayers in front of people. And when he does, like the Lord God responds. There's a loud noise. The people hear the response, and the Father says, of course I will glorify you I've already, as, I've, as I've already glorified you. In this hour, this is why you have come. This is what you're purposed and made for. And then Jesus says this, listen, I, I did this, I prayed this, and God responded, not for me, because I already knew this. This was already true in my heart. I'm not trying to fulfill something. This isn't me trying to get something right so God would honor me. I already knew this, but this is so that you'll know that I already knew this. That you'll know that what I'm doing isn't me just trying to, to, to find my place. That his act of sacrifice was not him trying to discover something, well, but, but it's because he already knew something. Which is a little bit different than the way we tend to go about sacrifice, isn't it? Sometimes. Sometimes we do things in order to prove even to ourselves that we are who we think we are. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus doesn't go to the cross out of obligation, out of self-fulfillment, or some sort of masonistic piety. He does not find, he does not enjoy the pain of the cross. It's not the pain of the cross 
the enjoyment of the cross itself that moves him forward, right? It's the joy that's set before him, that's out in front of him, that's on the other side of the cross that draws him. It's the joy of knowing where he'll be after he endures the cross. And where is he? He's with the Father. He's in perfect communion, holy and truly, fully and totally who he is. He's in the presence, the divine presence that we sing about in the first song of our, of our gathering, right? The, thing that we, the place that we long to be in the presence of the Lord, always. That's what draws Jesus to the cross. It's the same joy Jesus wishes to impart to you and I. Do you know that? That Jesus wishes for you and I to share his joy as we follow him. Listen to what Jesus said the night before he endured the cross. Some of these words will sound familiar, but listen to where Jesus leads them to. He says, I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. He trims at it. He cuts the weight off of it. All those kind of things, right? Abide in me, Jesus says, and I in you. Whoever abides in me and I in them, them it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you abide in me, my word abides in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Abide in my love, Jesus says. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you. Why? That my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Jesus wants us to be joyful. And not just happy, but like to have his joy. And what joy did Jesus have? Again, we said it. What kind of person can say on their cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And it not be cynicism or resignation or bitterness, but trust, wholeness. Who else can do that but someone who knows himself fully? Who knows himself as a part of something, for the sake of something, completely. Who finds themselves, finds themselves only in giving themselves away to others. That's what Jesus wants to share with us. That's what his commandments lead us to. Jesus desires us to abide in him, his word, his love, by keeping his commandments, by doing the things that we're supposed to do, the things that he showed us to do, by cutting off the things, the weights that would keep us from doing those things, by putting to death the sin that would keep us from those things. But not so that we might merely be disciplined people, but rather so that we might share the same joy that he has a joy of relationship with the Father, enmeshed in a grander story which brings both direction and purpose, wholeness, endurance, and foreverness to our stories. That's what Jesus wants for you and I. The joy of his is neither discovered, the joy of Jesus is neither discovered nor shared in the pursuit of morality in itself, but in the formation of character through relationships. The joy of Jesus is neither discovered nor shared in the pursuit of morality itself, but in the formation of character through relationships. Now, this may seem a little controversial, but I'm going to say it anyway. Author David Brooks, anybody familiar with David, David Brooks? He's an author, writes for The Atlantic, New York Times, 
written several books, um, um, usually having to do with some sort of, of character, leadership, different kind of commentary on society and everything. Well, he wrote a particular book called The Second Mountain. And I think in his, this book, he's in the process of discovering salvation. It's not a book that's a Christian book by, by any means, though Christ is all over it. Sometimes explicitly stated in his own discovery of what Jesus actually said. But in it, you see a man who's discovering something, discovering who he is. Who he is is a part of something more than himself. Discovering who he is is a part of something more than himself as he gives himself to others. It's his story, I think, in some ways, of salvation. Of recognizing something that I think we, especially we committed, and rightly so, to holiness often miss. Here's what he says in the opening of, of his book. He says, I no longer believe that character formation is mostly an individual task. That holiness, as most of us think of holiness, is not merely um, an individual task. It's achieved by a person-on-person basis. It's not something like, I can become holy without you. I can become more holy than you. You go be holy and I go be holy. Hey, let's all work on our own holiness. That's what he's saying he's discovered. He's like, I don't think that's how it works. I no longer believe, says Brooks, that character building is like going to the gym. You do your exercises and you build up your honesty, your courage, your integrity, and your grit. I now think good character, and listen to this and see if you can see what he's discovering. I now think good character is a byproduct of giving yourself away. I now think the thing that I'm after, to be a person of high morality, that's what he wants. He longs to that, to be holy in some sort of fashion. But he's felt like, like he's discovered that it's not by doing more exercises of holiness, of character, but rather by giving yourself away. You begin to love the things that are worthy of love. And what's worthy of love? I mean, think about it. What does Jesus say is worthy of love? God, the Father. Love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But what else? Your neighbor. And yourself. You love the things that are worthy of love. God, neighbor, self. You surrender to a community or a cause. Make promises to other people. Build a thick jungle of loving attachments. Lose yourself in the daily act of serving others as they lose themselves in the daily acts of serving you. Character is a good thing to have. And we would say yes and amen to that. And there's a lot to be learned on the road to character. And again, we'd say yes and amen to that. But there's a better thing to have. Listen to what he's discovered. Moral joy. He calls it moral joy because he then goes and kind of differentiates different types of joy. But it would just be joy. (laughs) The joy of Jesus. There's something better. And that's the joy of Jesus. And the serenity of being a joyful person a moral person who's joyful, arrives as you come closer to embodying perfect love. Embodying perfect love. Not a disconnected morality. Not a following a set of rules and regulations. Not a building up of of certain disciplines. But an embodiment of perfect love is what actually Jesus commands. We ended on... 
Jesus said, I've spoken these things that my joy might be in you and your joy may be full. I've keep my commandments and you abide. Abide in my love. I speak these things so that you might joy my full. And then he tells us what he commands. In verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Not just any love, his love, in the way that he loves. Greater love has no one than this, that they lay down his life for his friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You are my friends if you do what I command. And what did I command? That you love one another as I have loved you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. All this stuff that we're talking about, all this going off of weight, taking off the weight that would entangle us, the sin that would entangle us, and the work that's going to require to do that, to pursue a holy and wholly committed life, is perfected in love. It's in this love, it means his love. It's relational, not simply moral. And listen, it's not that morality and love are contradictory. Please don't hear that. It's just untrue. But what is true is that when we pursue character, morality, or righteousness in some isolated way, whether in the construct of philosophy, a political idea, or faith, or even in a set of rules on paper, for instance, when it becomes something isolated from relationship, how we actually engage and interact with one another and with God. Then, we end up with a self-absorbed and cold-hearted religion, which is not salvation for ourselves or our neighbors. Right? That was Jesus' point throughout the whole Samaritan travels, wasn't it? Wasn't he trying to get the heart of those who said they wanted to follow God into the heart of God? Not through go do this and don't do this. Through love your neighbor. Help the one on the street who's been robbed. Don't walk past because religion has told you not to touch and that you'll somehow miss out on God because that person is untouchable. Isn't this how Jesus taught us in all the Samaritan parables? To not, not pay attention to the one we don't see intentionally and try to demand from them rather than be ones who serve them. Over and over again in Luke's gospel, this is what Jesus has been after. So how do we keep wholly committed to a holy life? To discover the set-apartness for which we were created. Well, Praise the Lord that we're a part of, of something of the main, that we're a piece of the continent. This isn't the, we're not the first people to ask this question. It's a question that's been asked by humans from the beginning, by our family and heritage of faith since the days of Jesus. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to do something that's been done within the history of our faith for a long time. We're going to to do something that's called the practice of the examine. It's just, it's, it sounds all kind, it may sound strange to you. If you've been in Christ City, it shouldn't. We've done this for a long time, for a while. And this isn't something new for us. But we'll explain it as we go. But it's simply a practice of doing what the psalmist of Psalm 139 said. 
What is the beginning of Psalm 139? Do you remember what Lily read for us? She said, the psalmist begins in Psalm 139.1, God, investigate my life. Get all the facts firsthand. I'm an open book to you. The practice of examine is just doing that. Asking God to look at us. God to know us and us to know ourselves through God. It's not a self-examination. It's not a self-assessment. It's not a, here, go take this test and, and fill out these things and then pop back, here's what you're supposed to be, here's, here's what you, who's here you are. No, it's an entering into, a practice of entering into conversation with God so that God might show us who we really are. That he might show us how our story is a part of his story. And then we might, from discovering that, discover how our story goes forward in his story and how we stay in step holy and holy committed in a life of joy. And listen, all the resources for this are going to be on the app. So like right now, you can actually go to the app and go to the current series page. And like even if you don't want to wait till next week when we enter into this practice together in this space, you can go and look at all the resources that we have there for the examine. You can jump in before us. You can, you can be the good students and get the extra, extra um, uh, little credit, you know? And so we'll find out who the type A's really are. Um, but no, but, but you'll find on there resources that you can use um, for yourself. Because listen, a lot of this will be you and God, right? But there's a reality of both the Psalms, Psalm 139, uh, who, where this practice comes from, and the reality of what we've been talking about is that we can't know ourselves just by ourselves. Like we can't know ourselves just in conversation with God. There's a part of it that we can, but like we're not created just you and I, you and God. You're created as a part of God's family. And so we're going to learn how to do this thing together. And so you can use the resources that we have by yourself or with spiritual companions, friends who you trust in the faith, your DNA group, your gospel community, your spouse. But we'll go through these together in this gathered time to help us Live a committed life of joy. And that's what we'll be after. So I know today has been more kind of an introduction, but I want us to let us kind of hang in that just for a minute before we enter back into song and kind of conclude our time together. I want us to do this. We just bow your head and close your eyes. Psalm 139, after the psalmist has, um, has figured out who he is in relation to God, into God's story, what he's committed to and longs for, he says these words, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the ancient way, the way everlasting. Just for a moment, Without any other context, just ask God that. Just open yourself to that. Over these next few weeks, allow yourself to be one whom God searches and knows. Who shows you who you are and whose you are and what you're for. Even in the anxiety of that, even in the 
even if we don't really fully desire it yet. Ask him to search you, to know you, to show you what might be grievous or hurtful. And through the life of Jesus, lead you in the ancient way. In just a minute, Jazz is going to come and play. And as he does, we're going to come and receive communion together. And the way it's going to work um, here in this space is that when Chaz starts playing, you can come down the middle aisles and grab your communion cups and can just kind of make your way back to your chairs on the outside. And in a few minutes when the song ends, we're going to receive the symbol of a truly holy and committed life together. The sustenance of what allows us to live holy and holy committed. Okay? Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that Thank you that you long to share your joy with us. To fill our joy. Not just little spurts of it here and there, but to let the joy of Jesus be that which emanates in our hearts and from our lives. May we be ones not only who get to experience it, Father, but who experience it in the way that Jesus has made for us to experience it, through knowing ourselves in you, through giving ourselves to others, through finding who we really are in the context of something so much bigger than us and yet so inclusive of it. Thank you for these friends here that will walk together with us as we do this as a reminder that we are never alone and that even though our story may be unique, it's always a part of something more. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.